Welcome back to the Word on Fire show. I'm Brandon Vaught, the host and the senior content director at Word on Fire. Today we pick up a thread that began a couple weeks back when we shared the first half of a dialogue that Bishop Aaron recently shared with Dave Rubin. We did the first half then. Today we're going to listen to the second half. The topic is the question, has liberalism failed? In this discussion, Bishop Aaron and Dave Rubin look at some of the underlying issues fueling today's partisan politics and the culture of contempt. They explore classical liberalism and how it fits into our current political systems. They look at some of the limits of liberalism and enlightenment values. And they also explore the emergence of idolatry towards many of our political leaders. They look at the Jordan Peterson phenomenon and how to have a productive and healthy religious argument. So lots of important topics, lots of fantastic conversation. I won't say more other than sit back and enjoy the second half of the dialogue between Bishop Barron and Dave Rubin. If you never look up, then if you never look vertically, you'll, you'll look horizontally all the time, meaning you'll only look at what is right here. You will only look at what's happening. You'll wake up every morning, there'll be a current event, and it will dictate your day. And, and that's simply no way to look at the world. Well, look, it's no way to look at the world and, and be fulfilled in any way. What's interesting that what shaped our culture for most of its, of its history, the Bible, look at the Ten Commandments. So people say, well, sure, you know, don't steal and don't kill and don't commit adultery and don't lie and you know, these great moral absolutes. But they're predicated upon the looking up, right? The first commandments are all about God. Your life is not about you. It's not simply your autonomous self that matters. It's that you honor the one God. There's no gods besides me. The president's not God. The country's not God. The culture's not God. The military isn't God. Nothing is God except God. And then uh, don't take his name in vain. And we think, oh, no, don't say you know, dirty words. But what the Bible would have meant by that, I think, is... Don't use the name of God for manipulative purposes. Like you can use it in some way to get what you want in, in an incantation. But we have our version of that. You know, if you want to, God just becomes something, someone I can manipulate for my purposes. And then keep holy the Sabbath means don't let this thing be an abstraction. You have to instantiate it, that you're going to go to church on Sunday. That's the look up that our culture mm -hmm. just had that allowed them then to look around and, and instantiate that through the rest of the commandments. Now, take all that out. And all you got left is the autonomous will asserting its, its power. God help us. Well, and, and by the way, if I could just add one thing to that, I mean, if you look at our political situation over the last couple of years, we seem to treat these people, regardless of whether you're a conservative or a liberal or a Democrat or Republican, we seem to treat our political leaders as if they're God, as, yeah, if, right, they're, right. as if they're purpose or their design is to solve all of our problems. Yes, right. <laughs> These people can't solve our problems. No. I mean, I think they probably could if they would just go away. That might solve most <laughs> of our problems. But in essence, we, we talk about them as if they are prophets or as if they are they're these fixers of our life. And they're not fixers of our life. They're people that I would say, unfortunately, have to have something to do with our lives because, as I said to the first question, we have to have some societal guardrails. The Bible knew that. I mean, from the very beginning, in, in Genesis, when God creates all these different elements and you got the stars and the planets and, and the earth itself and the mountains and the animals, they were all at different points in the ancient world worshipped as gods. Those were all considered gods. And the Bible's saying, no, 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 no. Don't turn something finite into the infinite. Only God is God. 
But that's the problem, is that you, God is kicked out. God, the God space does not go away. It gets filled by something or someone, inevitably. Now look at the great you know, fascist dictators or whatever. Even look at our you know, cultural mavens and pop stars and so on. Something fills the God space necessarily. The Bible was so clear that we get it. We know this happens, and it's really dangerous when it does. So, no, you're not God, you're not God, you're not God, you're not God. There's only one God. And you have to honor his name and you have to, you have to instantiate that belief in your life. When that disappears, and if you got now over a quarter of our country saying, I'm not religious at all, uh, that is not a minor problem for a democracy, precisely for a democracy, it seems to me. For a liberal democracy, that's a very serious problem. You know, it's interesting, the, the terms meaning have come up and different opportunities of, of kind of signs and symbols of this kind of decline that's occurred. Yeah. But also, I, I want to stick on this, this phenomenon of Jordan Peterson, of, of really yeah. what he was causing in the culture. Uh, and I don't think it's coincidence that as he kind of had mm. to disappear for, for many reasons, but we end up with what mm -hmm. we've got now. And I know, of course, one of my favorite chapters in your book is actually the Find the Mentor yeah. Yeah. Uh, ch uh, chapter with your travels with, yeah. with Jordan. And so maybe extrapolate a little bit about the, that phenomenon. Yeah, well, first off, I mean, I, I said to my producer, Michael, on the way here, he was asking me something about what it was like being on tour with Jordan. And in many ways, it feels like a dream to me. I mean, I spent a year and a half going literally all over the world. We did about 120 stops in about 20 countries traveled all over the United States. I mean, it was, it was yeah. breakneck speed constantly. Yeah. And when I tell you that there genuinely wasn't a negative moment, I, I mean it. Now, that doesn't mean there, there were little travel hiccups, little, yeah. little, little bumps in the road along the way. But in terms of that, we felt like we were doing something important. And, and I'll make it very clear when I say we, he was doing 90% of it, obviously, and the people were there for him. And I was you know, doing some fun stuff at the beginning of shows and doing the Q and A's at the end. But what I saw Jordan do is the thing that I think we all know we're supposed to do, but we just don't for some reason, which is he took his life's work through psychology and studying history and sociology, all the things that he's cared about that he's become an unbelievable communicator of. He took all of those things. He wrote a book, 12 Rules for Life. He then toured the book in front of thousands and thousands of people and every single night gave a different lecture about whatever was on his mind. You know, when you, when you do a, a book tour, usually they want you to talk about the book, right? Sure. The idea is we're gonna sell some books. Jordan didn't, didn't even want them to sell books in the lobby. I mean, he just thought, oh, there's thousands of people out there. I'm gonna just go out and, and say what's on my mind. So I saw a different lecture every night and I was on that adventure with him. And, and one of the things that I, that I talk about in chapter nine that, about finding a mentor is A, he was an accidental mentor to me because, you know, I think people think of, of a mentorship as if someone's going to come yeah, to your office right. one day and say, Bishop Aaron, you know, this is what I want in my life. And I need someone who can map it for me. That's lived a life yeah. that I, you know, I want to get to some of those things with Jordan. I sort of jokingly said to him the day the tour was going to start, Hey, I'd love to come warm up for you. And I really was kind of kidding. And he said, come on down. And we did it. And the agents were there. And then the next thing I knew it was a year and a half later. So you can find a mentor in, a, in an accidental way, but it was also that he didn't, it wasn't like we were sitting there having these lessons about how to go ahead. I just watched, I watched the man's words and thoughts line up with his actions every night. And then I saw 
what that did to people in the crowd. And, and the amount of people that we met that were off drugs, that were bettering their relationships with their parents or their spouses, yeah. that had given up another addiction, that had gotten a better job, that went back to school. I mean, I, I could tell you stories that I could probably have you guys in tears and they were real and they often had Jordan in tears and, and they were incredible. So I think the, the secret, the secret was that it was right in front of you. All he did was say what he believed bravely and, and fight as the mob came to him. And, and that was it. And, and to the latter part of your question, I totally agree that part of the chaos that we're seeing right now is that he did become a, a father figure or, a, or an uncle or some sort of positive authority figure for young people. And then his, his disappearance um, has left people without that. And, uh, and I'm certainly not that. And I don't know how many people, I don't know how many public, great public people it would take to fill that hole. You talk about a God-shaped hole, Jordan left a pretty big hole right there. Yeah. I, I thought about him a lot, actually. I was telling Dave before we came on camera here that uh, it was about maybe two years ago at a, a bishop's conference, so the national bishop's meeting. All the U.S. bishops are there. They asked me to give a brief presentation on the nuns, right? So who are they? Why are they leaving? All this. So I laid out the stats and why I thought it was happening. Then at the very end, I said, well, let me give you some signs of hope. And so I gave like one, two, three. At number four, I said, I'm not sure you even know this man's name, but there's this fellow, Jordan Peterson, who is giving talks around the country. And I, at that point, they were on the Bible. Mm. And I said, he's this um, psychology professor from Toronto. Uh, he's a massive presence online. And he gives serious lectures on the Bible. He's attracting thousands to his live shows and millions by uh, uh, online. So I just laid that out, you know. And the bishops, I think, were fine. Most of them probably didn't know who he was or had a vague idea. But then afterwards, the, there is a, a left-wing Catholic, you know, Twitterverse. And they just went yeah, after there's me. There's every kind of Twitterverse. Yeah, I mean, they, they <laughs> yeah. went after me just for mentioning his name. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I was not endorsing really anything he said. I just said he's, he's this sort of phenomenon that we should find some hope in. But that's one issue that the, the Catholic left. But um, what I find really fascinating is just that. Here's our book. I'm saying our now in a proprietary way, you know, mm -hmm. as, a, as a bishop of the church. Here's the Bible. Here's the Bible. Uh, people have been leaving our churches in droves. We've obviously not been proclaiming this Bible in a way that a lot of young people are finding compelling. Yet here comes Jordan Peterson, who's speaking from the same book. And what he's doing, I would say, is what the church fathers did when they talked about the moral meaning of the Bible. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to bore you with all the details, but there are different levels of, of interpretation, one of which is the moral. So the Bible stories teach us how to live. And I think Jordan Peterson was doing exactly that. Uh, and they were responding in droves to him with extraordinary life-changing enthusiasm. That's partially a judgment on us. And I'm pointing to us religious mm -hmm. people that, that we weren't doing something with our great book that's really worth doing. Second observation is he's addressing people who have, who have left the churches and have lost the sense of a moral and spiritual ballast to an autonomous society. If all you're left with is autonomy, then you're in a very uh, flat space. He was speaking to that, it seems to me, which is why he had, and you know, it sounds a little strange to say, but almost a messianic quality. Yeah. Well, I'm not entirely surprised by that, even though he, in many ways an unlikely candidate. I mean, he's not uh, like a flashy, hey, look at me sort of speaker at all. But yet he did have 
that extraordinary impact on young people. It's a judgment on us. It's also a sign, I do think, of hope, you yeah. know, that when you speak spiritual truth into that space, people will respond. Well, not only will they respond positively, obviously, by the thousands of people that bought, the literally millions of people. I mean, I think over six yeah. million copies of the book were sold, but then the thousands of people that showed up. But then you're also going to get, in many ways, an equal or more severe backlash, which yeah. he got too, because of course, if you're going to tell the truth, you're, you're going to get a lot of backlash. I'll, I'll tell you one very brief story about being on the road with Jordan, because it got, it got cut from the book and it, it, mm. it truly moved me in an incredible way. We were in Dublin, and this is in the midst of bouncing around Europe, where there were just, you know, night after night, different country, and he's doing all the press, and, and yet still, as I told you right before we started, just never, never didn't give 100% on any given night. And it was a long day in Dublin. We had, a, we had a great show, but we had just got in that day, travel, the whole thing. He did the meet and greet. I mean, it's a grueling, you yeah. know, intellectually yeah. and, and mentally yeah. and physically, it's tiring. Uh, as you guys know, when you do these theater shows, the, as the performer, you usually can't walk out the main entrance because there's a lot of people waiting. So there's usually a, a side entrance. That's a little uh, insider trick for people that are trying to meet people after the show. We walk out of the show. It's, it's probably 1 a.m. And we're in this little dark alley. And about 20 feet away, there's two uh, men and they're hugging. And they start walking towards us. And one of them's probably about 60 years old. One of them's about 25 years old. And they're both sobbing, absolutely mm. sobbing. They come up to us and it's me and Jordan and, and the tour manager. And the older one says, uh, this is my son hmm. and we've been estranged for five years. We have not seen each other for five hmm. years. By coincidence, not coincidence, but they both came to the show because they had read the book and were getting their lives together, oh. <laughs> saw each other in the audience. And their hugging after that was them making amends with each other. And they told us the story as they were crying. Jordan began to tear up. I began to tear up. The tour manager began to tear up. And I thought this, what, what this thing that I'm standing in right yeah. now, like this is it. This is real and powerful for all the reasons that you just described. And, and yet so many people would somehow say that this, whatever the message is that Jordan was sending was negative. And th that's probably for a much broader conversation about the media and everything else. But, but just seeing that level of something, these, a father and son, five years, and there they are because these ideas brought them together. It was incredible. Wow. I think another yeah. aspect of this is that he provided, and, and you mentioned in the book that moment, that kind of famous moment with Larry Elder, where he talks about fatherlessness. Yep. It's, it's particularly, sadly, hitting the black community in particular, but it's also just hit the United States in, in, in whole. I mean, we're over 33% fatherlessness in the country, and it's, and it's just rapidly rising. And Jordan Peterson even filled kind of a, a fatherly mm -hmm. Role. So what is that fatherlessness of the country? How is that affecting this kind of woke reality that we're kind of in a post-liberal reality? I think it's affecting the country in many ways. I think that the fact that right now it seems like we don't have many adult, adults in the room, right? That we, any conversation that we have, whether it's a political debate yeah. or, or a debate about science now or, or literally anything, just about what's relative uh, or relevant in pop culture or anything, it seems like everything is constantly whittled down to destroying someone else and canceling someone else and everything else. So when we talk about missing a father, well, of course, there's the, the, the family element, and that's what Larry Elder and I discussed so intensely in that, in that fateful interview. But I think at a, at a broader sense, at a societal level, there aren't many people that you can look up to, many people that exist in the public sphere 
where I think we did have that for a long time and, and we don't have it anymore. Even, I mean, I can give you just like a very simple, and this isn't even quite the right example, but if you were to think back to Johnny Carson Tonight Show, regardless of whether <laughs> yeah, you sure. like Johnny Carson or not, most people kind of liked him. He was sort of apolitical. Mm -hmm. He was just thought of this nice man at the end of the day that could kind of calm everybody down and make a joke about himself. And, and, then, and then because it was before the internet, you know, millions and millions and millions of people could watch this. Well, now if you take the, the late night comics, they're all cut from the exact same political cloth, making the exact same jokes, making fun of the exact same people who happen to often be the exact people that you're talking to very yeah. specifically. And it's like, well, we've lost that. The way I would relate that to the father part is we've lost something. Nothing really feels wise in society anymore. Jordan felt wise. And I think people actually do want that. They want to feel that, oh, that's a person that I could be like. like and, and how many of those people exist in the public realm right now? Very, very few. Yeah. He's, of course, he has a strong Jungian orientation. And, oh, yeah. You know, the archetype of the, of the wise old man, Yoda in the Star Wars, which is just a Jungian uh, story, really, all those different archetypes, and that's one of them. And I think Jordan Peterson did play that role in some ways. He was the archetype of the wise old man for the culture. To your question, Jared, you know, one of the clearest indicators by all statistical studies of disaffiliation is when the father stops going to church. At the risk of sounding sexist, not that mom's involvement isn't important, but statistically, again and again, when dad believes and goes to church, the kids follow. When dad doesn't go to church and doesn't believe, the kids follow. So make of that what you want, but I think it's certainly true. So the, the loss of, of the father figure is hugely important for religion. Well, now I'd like to kind of switch gears a little bit. And uh, in both uh, your book, Dave, uh, Don't Burn This Book, as well as Bishop Barron's uh, Arguing Religion, you both talk about the necessity of good public debate. That's how a good classically liberal uh, society operates. Um, you know, John Henry Newman called it the marketplace of ideas, you know, the ability to kind of toss around ideas and that the truth will rise. Uh, but at the same time, there's, there's kind of this call for tolerance. There's this call for, of course, uh, I think we would all agree that there's a difference between people and ideas. But what are some of those kind of hallmark aspects of, of good public debate? You don't always have to win. And you, <laughs> and you don't always have to be right. And I don't know, people will say to me, well, Dave, how do you sit across from some of these people when, you, when it's so obvious that they have ideas that are counter to yours? And I think, well, I think partly it's nature versus nurture. I think my general disposition of birth is that I'm, I'm wired a little cooler. Some people run really mm -hmm. hot, some people run really cool, right? And that, that can be judged accordingly. <laughs> I think that's partly, but I also grew up in a family that where I talk about this in the book, where we debated everything. Mm -hmm. Every holiday was everyone arguing about foreign yeah. policy, about abortion, about religion, about everything. <laughs> and then quite literally it happened every time dessert would be served and then everyone just put it aside. That isn't to say we didn't have family issues about, about inner, personal family stuff, but in terms of the public stuff, it was like, let's, let's have that fight and let it go. I didn't even really realize until I was writing the book that that had had that imprint on me because you know, when you're writing a book, you know this, you have to really, right. well, why do I really think about this? It's not just some intellectual exercise. It's really, it's, it's personal and it's real. So I think, I think that is part of it that we have to learn that we don't always have to win. But I think another part of it is, um, and I, I hit this also in the book, is that when I was a lefty, one of the things that I started realizing was so wrong with modern leftism 
is that everyone who disagreed with them was a homophobe and a racist right. and a bigot That's and the rest of it and a Nazi. And what I started realizing was that beyond the absurdity of it, right, to call people in America in 2020 Nazis. I mean, it, it's just it's so patently absurd. But but it wasn't what you were doing to those people. It was what you were doing to yourself. Because if you run around calling everyone a bigot and a Nazi and these irredeemable phrases, mm -hmm. well, what happens, and I think Trump has been a version of this, when they don't turn out to be that, mm -hmm. for whatever flaws Trump has, when you don't turn out to be, you can't suddenly turn around and say, you know that, that, not, that Hitler guy I've been screaming about? He's actually <laughs> so not that bad, right. So what you've done is you've painted yourself into an yeah. intellectual corner that keeps getting tighter and tighter and tighter. You give yourself no room to, to say, I was wrong. And, and by the way, that sort of also gets back to our earlier part about what society without belief leads to because there's no forgiveness. You can't even forgive yourself at that point. So <laughs> it, that's a very long-winded way of saying that if, if you can try to be a little better than your intellectual opponents, um, I think A, you'll find it not that hard to do usually. But B, there is a reward. It just takes a little longer to get there. Because yes, it's in a world of Twitter, do, do you want to just crush that person and own that person and get the viral video and all of those things? Yeah, you can do that, but there, I think there's a longer game out there. Yeah, there's so much to say, Jared, about that. I, I always go back to Stanley Hauerwas. He's a Methodist theologian, one of my favorites. Uh, he said, the great challenge of our time is to discover how to have a good argument about religion in public. And his point was, we have these these two, uh, the binary option, either uh, tyrannical imposition of one's views or bland toleration of everything. And in between those two, there's this lovely space called the space of argument. Mm -hmm. you know, I'm, not, I'm not trying to impose something on you aggressively. You know, I'm not taking advantage of my power and all that. Nor am I just saying, oh, well, I have this, you have that. You know, let's tolerate each other. I'm trying to propose something to you that I think is true and then I think you'll benefit from hearing. That's called the space of argument. But see, people don't even know how to have an argument anymore because what you said there, they, they simply conflate ideas and, and persons. Mm -hmm. you know, so if you you're have an idea that I don't share, you're a terrible person, I hate you, and I want to cancel you. As opposed to, well, no, why don't we discuss it? Which means pay attention. You know, think of, of Lonergan's uh, imperatives, you know, be attentive. What, what's real? What's real? What are the data? What's actually out there? Be attentive. Be intelligent. Marshal arguments. Try to get some evidence, you know. Stop contradicting yourself. Stop doing ad hominem uh, arguments. Uh, be reasonable. Draw conclusions. I mean, it's, it's not that complicated. But we've almost forgotten the art of having an argument. I can tell you on YouTube and Twitter and all that, no one ever argues. They don't know how to <laughs> argue anymore. And I love argument. People say, oh, to argue, argue is so negative. It's not negative at all. It's a, it's a path of peace. That's the whole point. Well, argument look, you, is, you can either argue verbally or, or it ends up violent. I mean, yeah, that, that, right. It's a way of holding off violence. Yeah. And my hero, St. Thomas Aquinas, uh, Middle Ages, in dialogue with, literally in dialogue with, with people that would come to his, they call them disputed questions, where people would, would ask a question from the crowd and you'd have to answer it, you know. But in his writings, in dialogue with Jewish rabbis and, and Islamic scholars and with pagan scientists and with Christian heretics, and Thomas talked to everybody, raised a whole range of questions, entertained the objections Seriously. In fact, it was, it was in one of those Jordan Peterson, Sam Harris mm -hmm. debates that I first heard the term steel man. Mm -hmm. I'd never heard that before. I mean, straw man. Yeah. 
But that's a really good exercise. Steel man your opponent's argument. Well, Aquinas does that naturally. When he lays out the objections to his own position, he does it in a really res respectful and substantive way. That's a great art to develop. Steel man your opponent's argument. Well, thanks for listening to the second half of this great discussion between Bishop Barron and Dave Rubin. But there's actually more to the conversation than we shared here. To access the full extended discussion, you have to join the Word on Fire Institute. It's exclusive for our Institute members. So sign up at wordonfire.institute. That's where you can learn more and join over 16,000 other Catholics like you in learning how to become a better evangelist and proclaimer of Christ. When you sign up, you get access to all sorts of amazing courses. You receive our quarterly journal. You get a free book in the mail. You get access to all of Bishop Barron's films and study programs, and you get access to the rest of this invigorating discussion. So sign up today by visiting wordonfire.institute. Well, thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time on the Word on Fire show.